Okay, welcome everybody. My name is Warren Brown. I'm going to be speaking today. I would call it preaching, but I'm not exactly a preacher. Um, we have been uh, talking about discipleship, and discipleship is our everyday yes to God, which we've begun to talk about al already. And we have conceptualized our discipleship and our yes to God in terms of meals. And we have thought about sort of three kinds of meals. Meals in which we are the host and uh, we are giving hospitality. So I kind of thought of that table over here. And meals in which we are the guest and we are receiving hospitality, which is over there. And then of course the third table, the third meal, is the Eucharist, our communion together, in which Jesus is our host and we are his guests. And uh, thinking about discipleship that way is, to me, seemed rather remarkable because there are other ways to think about discipleship. I mean, the way I grew up, if you're talking about discipleship, you probably meant things like preaching on the corner, which my grandfather did, uh, witnessing to people, sharing the four spiritual laws, uh, living a life governed by things one does and does not do, a sense of piety, uh, or spending lots of time meditating and personal devotions and worship, all of that being really good stuff. But what we have taken as our task is to think about our discipleship somewhat differently than that and think about it in terms of tables and meals and fellowship and hospitality. Uh, and we have taken that pretty much as a metaphor, that tables are sort of a metaphor of something else. Uh, I am a person who believes in the embodiment of life, that uh, our minds and ourselves and our souls and whatever else are part of our physical life in God's world. And so I want to take the meal idea literally. So I'm going to talk concretely about discipleship as meals, and then going deeply into that, then we can think about what this might mean more broadly, more symbolically, or more metaphorically. Uh, so I'm going to talk about, oops, I didn't get all three of those up there, oops, thought I did, but I didn't. So there's our three meals. So I'm going to talk about the discipleship significance of meals. Uh, so first thing we need to do is I want to read our sort of text for the morning. I want to start out with what is for Mountainside our sort of core text and aim. And that is out of Micah 6.8, but I want to read the whole passage or more of the passage than just Micah 6.8. So the prophet Micah asks a question, and he asks this question, with what shall I come before the Lord? and bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And we could probably add to that list of other things we do 
to try to come before the Lord. And Micah answers the question, the rhetorical question, I guess. He says, whoops, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, he has shown you, o, o mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. So I think that is actually pretty consistent with our understanding of discipleship. And then our actual text is from uh, Acts 2, 42 to 47. And uh, I think this is actually consistent with Micah's call to justice and kindness and mercy and walking humbly. So the, and it's a description of the very early church and the way they uh, lived life together. So it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So although other things are mentioned, which is all kind of part of the scenario, several times the idea of meals and of giving and receiving are an important part of this whole description of the life of the very early church. So before going further with this, I want to tell you a story. It's actually a story about an event in my life that is actually embarrassing to tell, but I'll tell it anyway. And uh, it's a story that occurred some time ago. Oh my, with lights you can't see that, shucks. When my family and I were living in Zurich for a year, and uh, the one on the left is Cherise and Ren and you can see Sharice and Wren and the one, so you can see how young my children were and how young we were at that time when we were in Zurich, Switzerland. I was there for doing some research on a federal grant in Zurich, and while I was there, we took some time to go around to some European scientific meetings that I wouldn't have a chance to go to otherwise. And at one of those meetings, uh, Jan and I met Gerhard and Gudrun Wernicke or Beanicky, probably best, who were also our age and also had children, and he was a, a professor at the University of Dusseldorf. And so, I don't know exactly how this came about, but the Beanickys invited our family to spend a weekend with them uh, in Dusseldorf. So, uh, when we drove up, there's Gerhard at the car. Oh, good job, there's Gerhard. <laughs> <laughs> That's back when I actually had hair. Uh, so here's Gerhard taking the groceries out of the car, obviously what he had bought for our benefit for the visit of these friends from America, you know. And as we was taking stuff out, there was uh, boxes and bottle of bottles of wine and beer and lots of other good drinks, and 
So great. So to understand this story, we've got to backtrack here. So Janet and I uh, were raised, grew up in very staunch Nazarene homes. And in our homes and in the denomination at that time, this was very pietist group for whom alcohol was not part of the scenario. So we grew up in very teetotaling homes. And we had maintained a relationship with that community we grew up in, so we pretty much maintained that discipline ourselves. And um, so, here we are, we've got this problem with the Vernikis. So at some point, I don't know how this went down, but we told them, look, you know, we don't drink alcohol and whatever. Well, that actually deflated our hosts. And in fact, the whole weekend was a little bit awkward and a little bit embarrassing. And so just to kind of in telling the story, it's just even embarrassing to think about. <laughs> the problem and what, you know, is particularly embarrassing now for me to think about this thing was our focus on ourselves and our own piety that somehow our discipleship was about the things we did and we didn't do, and it was about us and our piety and our life and our thing. And, I mean, even then it felt like a short-circuiting short of the hospitality of our hosts. And um, actually ended up with another situation like this in Lausanne and ended up being hosted at a dinner up in the wineries around Lausanne where the whole scenario was our good wines here in Lausanne. And, uh, so this is not meant to be a story about alcohol, obviously. It's a, matter, it's a story about what we focus on with respect to our discipleship. What is our discipleship about? Uh, is it about these things we do or don't do? Or is it about the relationships that God calls us into and the uh, accepting and giving of hospitality in those relationships? So after that embarrassing story, uh, I want to think about and ask the question about what uh, is important and helpful, how is it important and helpful to conceptualize our discipleship in terms of meals? And what is it about meals that is so fundamental to Christian discipleship? And what is it about meals that tends to let the good flow? And it does, usually. So I'm going to just suggest some random things that come to my mind in thinking about meals and what is about, it is about them that is critical and important to our discipleship. So one is that hospitality is never about me. Uh, it is about the other. So discipleship cannot be thought of in an individualist sense. It can't, can't be about me because it's about us. And it, it if it's hospitality, it operates in the interactions and relationship and space between people. It's not about uh, us as individuals. And in that sense, and this being a psychologist, I'm going to kind of go off on this one, meals constitute a unique form and pattern 
of relationship, that there is in fact a particular relational psychology that happens around meals that doesn't happen in other contexts as readily. It happens, but it's just not as readily. So, for example, there's some important things about this. One is we're sitting down. So, posturally, sitting is a very different uh, relationship than standing. Standing is more assertive, more confrontive, more active. Sitting is more vulnerable, more peaceful, more relaxed, and in a meal, usually, you sit down. You can kind of feel this in the difference between being at one of these sort of uh, uh, parties where you have some hors d'oeuvres and a drink and you stand around and talk to people, and the nature of that talk relationship versus the relationship one has when one sits down at a meal across from people and talks. So uh, there's something about sitting, it's more physically vulnerable. Uh, but make sure if you host a meal that the t chairs are not uh, unstable. Because people sitting on, un this is true, people sitting on unstable chairs view the world as less stable and less reliable and, and so make sure that the chairs are, are nice and stable. Uh, there's an issue of eye contact and closeness, so usually in a meal you're either across from somebody and have eye contact, you sit down, you look at, look at people in the eye, or if it happens to be a big enough table, you might end up sitting by people, which is a physical closeness that's closer than most of our experiences in life with other people. So we're actually physically closer or we're making eye contact in important ways. Uh, I read somewhere that somebody had done a survey or study or something that uh, because of the prevalence of virtual relationships in society now, particularly among, among younger people, they are, as, are kind of scared and anxious about actual interpersonal contact and situations. And uh, I think sitting down at a meal relieves a lot of that anxiety over, over contact and interaction. Anyway, uh, there's also something relational about qualities about food. So make sure the food is warm. So there's a study that um, you have bring people into your lab and you have them sit there and rate the pleasantness of pictures. But while they're rating the pleasantness of pictures, they are either have a warm drink or a cold drink. And when they're holding and drinking a warm drink, they rate those pictures as much more pleasant and nice and these are people I'd like to be with. And if they're holding a cold drink, and these are rated as much less like nice and people I'd like to be with. So make sure the food is warm. Make sure it's also sort of sweet and not too bitter, because you can do the same thing with people eating bitter or sweet food. And if they're eating sweet food, they rate the pictures, and they, they, are, they are not you know, led, to, led to believe that what they're eating has anything to do with this rating process. But if they're eating sweet food, they rate those pictures as much more pleasant and 
whatever. And you can do that experiment in a lot of different contexts. So there's something about relational about the quality of food. And in fact, when people are hungry, of course, as they're eating, there's this physical satisfaction of eating. Uh, there's also um, meals regulate moods. Uh, eating carbs or certainly eating meats like turkey increase the serotonin levels in your brain. When the serotonin levels in your brain increase, you feel a certain amount of calmness and wellness and everything is nice. And then if you eat too much turkey or whatever, you end, or carbs, you end up going to sleep. It's also calm, calming. Uh, caffeine is a stimulant and an antidepressant as well. So caffeine has a certain social benefit. Alcohol uh, works like an anti-anxiety drug. It's a GABA-benzodiazepine GABA stimulant. And uh, so it works like benzodiazepine kind of drugs. It's anti-anxiety. So uh, it also, alcohol increases dopamine release, which is reinforcing and pleasurable and whatever. So there's that. Uh, so the point is that there is a relationship between eating and mood. Uh, people who, uh, eating with other people, so there's a social part of this, eating with other people actually increases people's happiness. Eating with other, without other people or eating alone decreases uh, their happiness, increases depression. So there's that. Uh, another sort of property of meals is just time. It takes time to eat a meal together and amounts of time we just don't usually take with other people. Unless you are Sharice and I, my daughter. So Sharice and I hold the world's record for the shortest meal ever eaten at Islands. <laughs> so one day we were, went to lunch and we were talking a lot, you know, and we went into Islands. I happened to look at my watch. It was kind of early in the afternoon, or early before lunch, so there was nobody in there. So we got right to our, our seat. Immediately, the waiter or waitress came up, and we knew what we wanted to order, so we ordered our meal. There was nobody else in there, so we got our meals like really fast, and we sit there, and, the, and Josh will, uh, will tell you this, Browns eat fast. And so <laughs> Charisse and I ate our lunch, and we got up and paid and walked out, and I happened to look at my watch again, and we'd been in there 15 minutes. <laughs> Honest truth. So, but that's not usual. That's funny because it's not usual. What, we, what meals cause us to do is spend time with uh, one another that is longer than the time we usually uh, would spend. And, uh, and then there's also something about conversation over meals that tends to be open-ended. Occasionally we have a meal where we actually have a lunch with somebody and we have an agenda, and so the, it's not op totally open-ended. But even if you think about those meals, you spend about the first five or 10 minutes just kind of talking and sharing and getting to know. But most of our meals, we sit down at a meal without an, a conversational agenda. And it's open-ended in order for the conversation to go wherever it wants and needs to go. So that's, that's one another thing. Uh, another thing about meals is the context for sharing. 
and food is shared either by the host to the guests or if you have a potluck kind of thing, all the guests bring food and share it with one another. But in, food, in meals, it's a context in which we share with one another. And uh, um, we also often around meals share work. So it's a time we share with one another. Uh, oh my gosh, we're moving on time. Uh, and there is a, a, a situation, it, it is true that sharing produces reciprocity and reciprocity produces trust. Uh, there is an experiment done with uh, two people uh, who sit down over a meal, but when they sit down over the meal, they are supposed to assume a role. And they're supposed to assume a role either as a union a negotiator or as a management negotiator, and they're going to negotiate over, over wages. And if they share food, that is, they pass food back and forth, they come to an agreement much faster than if they're each eating their own food. So there is something about the sharing of food that engenders trust and reciprocity. Uh, then meals open us up to change, have a potential for change. And, and just think in Bible stories about the story of Zacharias. Jesus goes to Zacharias' house and accepts his hospitality, and Zacharias is ready to give half his wealth to the poor and just a, a major change. Or uh, on the Emmaus Road, the guys on the Emmaus Road talking with Jesus and, and don't really figure out who he was is until they sit down and there's something about the openness of a meal that they begin to realize who it is that they have been walking the Emmaus Road with. Or the, the um, breakfast on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus uh, cooks the fish and they eat breakfast together. And then as soon as the breakfast is over, in the openness of those moments, Jesus needs to deal with Peter about his denial and uh, the request, do you love me? And so a certain amount of opening, openness. Uh, I'm gonna jump over this one. Meals are a place for social learning, certainly for our children. This is a, but it's also actually for adults in terms of practicing our virtues of, our social virtues of generosity and, and uh, um, uh, uh, love and care for one another and patience and appropriate conversation, all of those things. Uh, and lastly, and I think this is really important, particularly in the kinds of things that, that um, uh, Norma was talking about and the issues of being a friend versus an alien. Meals offer an opportunity to span across identity differences. And our world is, is constantly wanting to um, reorganize ourselves into identity groups. You're one of these and you're one of those and I'm one of these and you're not one of those. I'm, so we get lots of us's and them's in this world and I think across a meal is a really important opportunity to span across uh, these kind of, of differences between us. Um, one of the things about meals is they can go wrong We've probably all experienced a, particularly a family meal that just 
went off the deep end and was not, ended up not a good thing. And so it's not like this always happens, but it, it can happen. So I want to end up, I'm going to skip that. I want to end up with an assignment. You all have assignment this week. And the assignment is either to read or watch Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast is a uh, short story written by Isaac Denison, who is the author of Out of Africa. And it's a short story. I, re I downloaded it on my uh, Kindle for 99 cents, and it took me about two hours to read it. So, or you can watch the movie, or both. I'd actually suggest you read the book, and then or read the short story, and then watch the movie. A lot of stuff left out in the movie that's really good in the short story. All, this is always true. But it's a 1988 winner of an Academy Award for the best foreign language picture. And it's a story about discipleship and meals and lives, giving and sharing, a church community, problems of piety, uh, discord and resolution, care for the needy, uh, and then good images of the, the feast of the lamb at the end or of the, of the of Eucharist. So to get you to put this in your mind, I'm going to show you a YouTube video of a New York Times guy doing a kind of quick critique or whatever of Babette's Feast. So if you guys can show it, that would be great. <laughs> 